Another week closer to the playoffs in this Ontario Hockey League. And if I may say, as we begin this episode, another week where we're going to have a conversation that I wish we didn't have to have. And I'm just going to preface it right here, right now at the beginning that I'm not here to embarrass anybody. I know my partner, Dan Mahar, is not here to embarrass anybody. We're not going to start screaming and shouting that people are doing their jobs terribly. But I know my sincere goal in all of this is the betterment of the Ontario Hockey League. I think Dan feels exactly the same on that. So let's dive right in. My name, by the way, is Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. You'll find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. And I really, Dan, shouldn't even speak for you. But I think we do come at this entire podcast with the same goal in mind. A, we love the league. And B, we want to see the league have a long-term sustainable future here. And the better that it does its job today, the more sustainable that future becomes. Yeah, I think that's it, Mike. Like we've watched this product for quite a few years, and and the only interest I, th- I think we bring to the table is that the betterment of the league, the betterment for the betterment of the game, and let's try and get it as right as we possibly can, considering all factors. And and when the league doesn't, or we feel they don't, we're here to call it out. So, so Slewfoots are back in the news this week. We've talked about them before. We'll talk about them again. Uh, our buddy Jonathan, who emailed OHLpodcast at rogers.com last week, has sent us another one. He's got an area code up in the 807. Jonathan, can I call you Johnny 807 from now on? I think Johnny 807. We'll Jonathan will probably email again and, and let me know what he thinks of that. We'll get to Slewfoots in a second. But let's start with a really curious situation, Dan. And that is this, a suspension to Ryan McGuire of the Guelph Storm. Again, like I said at the beginning, I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying Ryan McGuire is a terrible person. I'm not saying the Guelph Storm are a terrible Ontario Hockey League organization. It's not necessarily about the player or the team that he plays for. It's about what transpired. And what transpired was this. Ryan McGuire was assessed initially a five-minute penalty in a school day game versus Mississauga last week. Upon review, that was that was lowered to a two-minute minor penalty. Fine. Game goes on. Storm win the game. It was part of a nice little six-game winning streak they had going. And then three days later, we find out that Ryan McGuire had been suspended for that play, during which he received just a two-minute minor in the game. And I want to be clear about this. I don't mind that Ryan McGuire got suspended after a play that resulted in two-minute minor. That's okay. We can review things after the fact and make a different determination. What I do mind is that it took three days. This happened on a Wednesday, and more to the point, not only did it take three days, but Ryan McGuire played another game before the suspension was handed down. For the betterment of the league, I think it should be incumbent on the league to issue its ruling before that player plays his next game. And I'm sorry, if that means you have to burn some midnight oil, then you burn that midnight oil. But in this case, there was no midnight oil to burn. It happened on a Wednesday morning. You had the rest of the day Wednesday, all day Thursday, and all day Friday before Ryan McGuire played his next game Friday night to issue a ruling. And the league didn't. And I am perplexed by that. 
Yeah, and this is what we've talked about before, Mike. There's really no excuse in my estimation. And I understand there's a lot that comes into these decisions. You want to make sure you get it right before you make a player sit out. You want to make sure that you've gotten the the on-ice officials reports, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not even talking about burning the midnight oil here, Mike. We're not talking about, you know, coming in on a Saturday for six hours to go over paperwork here. In an era of ready-made video, a uh, couple quick looks, 30 seconds here, 60 seconds there, the league at very least should be able to make a quick determination with someone from the office on call, off hours, on weekends, what have you, or in this case, on a Thursday morning, and try and look at it and say, yes, that's, you know, might have gotten this one wrong, we've got to assess it, but to not have a decision by the next game a couple days later is just, in my opinion, inexcusable. You have to, the, there's an integrity issue there, and if you want to have a rule with integrity here, you have to ensure that if a player commits a suspendable offense, he's not in the lineup for the next game. That opponent had to face him in the next three, didn't. It just makes no sense. You touch on a couple of things there. One is that this didn't happen on a Saturday. And the old joke about the Ontario Hockey League, of course, is that it's a weekend league, right? Games are largely played Friday, Saturday, Sundays, but you won't find anybody in the league offices over the weekend. It's a little bit strange. Like maybe they should just take Mondays and Tuesdays off and, and work Wednesday through Sunday, but that's always been the case with the league. And you said something interesting too, when you talked about paperwork. Video is ready-made these days. There shouldn't be a lot for the league. I mean, you can look at it all on screens. It can be delivered to you instantaneously, virtually. And and one of the other things I learned about the league, because I was curious about this, I have no skin in the game. I, I was not part of a game this past week that involved the Guelph Storm. The Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds were. The game that Ryan McGuire played before his suspension was issued he scored two goals and the storm won five two I, I wonder how much different the game would be i mean if i'm if i'm in the Sioux, I, I i might be raising a little bit of an issue with this but when i inquired with the league simply out of curiosity because i found it so strange that a player was not only able to play a game before the ruling came down usually in a case like that we see the player sitting indefinitely until the league gets around to it the other thing was just the three days when it happened on a Wednesday. Why on earth did it take until the Saturday to issue the ruling? When I inquired with the league, I was told they had to gather all of the pertinent information, including, in this case, medical records. So, unfortunately, the player on the other end of the Ryan McGuire hit was injured. I know we don't want to see that happen. We want to do what we can to prevent that from happening. The point we've already made about information exchanges being virtually instantaneous, so I don't know why it would have taken longer to get the medical records that the league says it was waiting for, but it raises the question, are we basing the suspension on the result of the play or the intent of the play? And if we're basing it on the result, I know likey, I know likey this one bit. No, that's a, that's a slippery slope, and that's a huge can of worms you open. I think that's exactly what the league has unofficially said with this comment, is they're punishing the result more than the intent. And for me, it's all about intent. All about intent. Because you can have different outcomes just based on luck, circumstances, whatnot. Uh, similar to the drunk driving analogy, right? So you you choose to go out, drink, and drive your car. You may not injure anyone. You may not kill anyone. But you had the exact same intent 
So I, I think you get into a slippery slope when you start talking about intent. Now you can take that into account if there's a serious injury after the fact. Uh, you can you can do those things, but I, I in this scenario with with McGuire and what happened with Guelph, I think everyone familiar with our justice system is familiar with the concept of preliminary hearings. And when you talk about doling out justice in in a hockey league you don't necessarily need all of the information at your fingertips to make a ruling here. You have a quick preliminary hearing and in the context of hockey, what I mean is someone from the league office views a video or two has a phone call with the on ice official that night says, yeah, you know what? We're looking at a suspendable, suspendable offense here. He's not playing the next game. We'll figure everything out a day or two later or something like that. But you don't, you, you actually have to make some sort of, ruling early on because once you've let that player play in the next game you've determined it wasn't a suspendable offense let me go down a road here that i'm not sure the league will like me going down but i think we have to go down it in the context of this conversation and again i'm going to preface i'm doing a lot of prefacing on this episode of the ohl podcast but i'm on record with this too you can go back and listen to any of these episodes or any of my broadcasts and you'll hear the same thing I think Dave Branch has been really good for the Ontario Hockey League. I'm a fan of Dave Branch as a commissioner. You can hate me for that. You can criticize me for that. You can tweet me at Farwell underscore OHL for that or send an email to OHLpodcast at Rogers.com. Tell me how wrong you think I am. But I've been a fan of Dave's for a while. I think he's a good commissioner. I think he's done a lot of good for this league. I wonder, though, Dan, if this is a situation that should make us ask the question if we need to reevaluate how we go about determining suspensions. Because as near as I can figure it, and I think I've got it figured out accurately, there are two people that work on this crew. The decision makers are David Branch and Ted Baker in the league office. So again, I don't know what transpired between the game on Wednesday morning and the issuing of the suspension on Saturday afternoon. Maybe they were on vacation. Maybe they had a family emergency. I don't know. But what I do know is that we've got two guys responsible for all of these things. Maybe it's too much for them to handle. Maybe they didn't feel motivated to get the job done. I don't know. But maybe it's time we take a look at how it is we're going about this and ask if it's serving the league's best interests in 2023. I'll quickly say, I'm not sure that it is. Yeah. Well, I, the first question I always ask myself in these situations, Mike, is, is there a problem? Is it broken? And I think when it comes to discipline, how it's doled out and how it's communicated in the OHL, we could probably comfortably say yes. And from the sense that we're hearing this from all corners of the league, all reaches of the league, Similar problems coming up over and over, nonpartisan in in most cases. So I think there is a problem. So when there's a problem, then we have to address it. And you talk about how the mechanisms work. And I, I thought there are there are subtleties to this when you were on the chair of Dave Branch or Ted Baker that come in. And I heard uh, it was the NHL disciplinarians talking about this. I believe it was Colin Campbell back in the day when he was doing that role. And he made the comment that he used to like to wait a day or two after the fact to see what the level of fallout was. Pardon me. So what that meant was initial reactions, knee-jerk reactions, he found were a problem. You know, that looked terrible. I'm going to suspend the guy. 
for two reasons. One, the emotions are still high in all regards, and that can be the headlines. And you don't want the headlines about your league being suspensions, violent incidents, etc. You want that kind of news cycle to die down and take a sober second look. So I, I believe that might be part of what we're seeing with the OHL league office. They want to let things settle down, simmer down, get a sober second look, see what they really have uh, before the, after the initial fog wears out. But we come back full circle to what you talked about, Mike, for the betterment of the league. And I think there's got to be a better system, both in terms of how quickly justice is ruled and how clearly it's communicated to the league, to the teams, to the players and to the fans. I mean, you're, you're asking a whole lot of, people to buy tickets to your product here often showing up not knowing if a player's playing why he isn't what the ruling was so i think there's a communications piece here too mike that can be improved wild idea just off the top of my head right here right now on the ohl podcast what if we were to create an independent arm's length advisory board or disciplinary panel to handle these matters you know, the, the thought crossed my mind a few minutes ago, actually, like, that, yeah, like this is a logical step to have sort of an existing board that deals with these things. This concept exists in a lot of different industries. Uh, obviously, there's a resource issue, like how much would it cost? Can you find the right people? Are they nonpartisan? But the concept ab- absolutely has merit, especially if the people currently making the decisions don't have the time or resources to, to rule in a timely fashion. Yeah, and I, I bristle a little bit at the cost piece. I'm not saying you're wrong, Dan. Don't get me wrong on that, please. But look, this league is, it's big time. It's big time, folks. And I think it is, it is a viable league, even in this challenging economy. It's a good product uh, at a decent price for value. I think the franchises by and large, I know it's not across the board, but by and large are doing okay and, and maybe there's some Hockey Canada support that could help this. Because if you want to remain the premier development organization in the world, which I still believe the Ontario Hockey League to be, dare I say, price is no object, or at minimum, phrase it as, cost should not be a barrier to this. If the creation of an advisory panel, the likes of which we're talking about, would improve outcomes, would improve consistency, would improve delivery, would improve communication, then cost be damned, get it done. For sure. And might even add another uh, piece to that suggestion, Mike, where you've got a bunch of qualified officials that know the game, know the rules, know the subtleties, maybe add a little uh, cash bonus to a few of their coffers to make these rulings in, in some sort of panel, maybe have some, some of the on ice officials that, you know, three or four that weren't involved in the game, have a look at it and say, yep, this is what it should be, or this is what it shouldn't be. But you, you have the qualifications within, within your league to actually make this happen. I wonder about retired officials now that could be a part of this. I wonder about conveners of other hockey organizations in Ontario, whatever i I'm going into the weeds on this. I didn't even intend on going here. It literally came off the top of my head, but I think there's merit to the idea of exploring this independent arm's length advisory panel or disciplinary panel to deal with these things. And and the other piece, and you touched on it earlier, Dan, that is connected. And I think if I'm being honest, I love you, Ontario Hockey League, but I think you're skimping on the communications budget here. 
And I get that sense. I know I pick some nits. I mean, it was only a couple to a few weeks ago I was talking about some sort of standardization in in base minimums for media room surfaces because I want a little sandwich to go with my coffee before a game. I don't think it's a lot to ask. I, I, I think there should be some consistency in the delivery of information in this league. I would like to go into all 19 other rinks that I visit in this league as a member of the media and get the exact same stats package. Doesn't that make sense? Well, guess what? I don't get that. It's different from one rink to another. I don't know if they're trying to save money on paper. I mean, the printer, they don't want to order more. Talk to Shaq about his new inkjet thing or whatever he's doing now. But it, it, it's different, sometimes wildly different. I would just like a consistent package. And I think about the officiating combine that they have now, which they wrote, they just announced their second year of it. I love that. Can't the league do a, an annual meeting with all of the communications people, with all of the teams in the league, and talk to them about the standard, the minimum standard that is expected by way of communication so that when I go to a rink as a member of the media or I go as a scout, I get the same package of information, right? And we, you know, they can talk amongst themselves about what best should be included in that package, perfect, and then deliver it. And furthermore, on this instance or the stuff that we started talking about around suspensions and discipline and whatever, I'm sorry. Look, there's a there's a young fella. I'm going to call him out by name, Josh Sweetland at the OHL offices, who's doing a terrific job. Like I I can't even imagine though how many hours a day he's putting in or how much work is on his plate because he's got to do all of the things and I I I think OHL, I humbly if I can help you spend some of your money, I think that department could be shored up so that communication is better with the teams, with the media, and with the fans, I think this league deserves that. And and the way I've seen this going, I've harped on this for a number of years now. I'm not certain the league recognizes this as any sort of priority. And I that disappoints me a little bit. Yeah, me too, Mike. And I think in an age of communication, people are thirsty for information. When you ask people to care about your league, you're asking them to seek information about it and want information about it. And there's a top-down control piece to all of this when it comes to corporate communications and, and the knowledge that you the more information you put out, the more questions you get back and you have to deal with that. And having said all that, I, I think that it, it's just poor practice to not want your fan base, your communities to be in the know. And the number of times that I feel I personally am in the I'm in the dark about something league has has done or said behind the scenes or it, yourself in the media. It just seems like far too often the people that are being asked to carry the the league message and the league promotion are in the dark about how they're doing things. And that old saying, no, no press is bad press. I mean, it's not quite entirely true, but it is true in this in the to the extent of if you truly believe in what you're doing in terms of how you're dealing with suspensions, how you're dealing with X, Y, and Z, then explain it. Uh, a little explanation goes a long way. A little information goes a long way. And I think when you have more people out there, like you referenced with Josh Sweetland and the numerous really eager, enthusiastic communications people you see around the league who would be more than willing to take on this work and they have passion for it, use those resources, build that brand. The only way I found out about the McGuire suspension, and I 
apologize right now because my timeline was mixed up. So it's almost two weeks ago now, two weeks ago this Wednesday that it occurred because we did have a game in the past week, but the Ryan McGuire piece did not factor in. But I noticed that he was not on the Storm roster when we had a Rangers Storm game. I talked to the members of the Guelph media to get the story and they said it was connected to this school day game. I'm like, well, then why did he play Friday? <laughs> why was, because then Guelph had a Saturday game and then this Tuesday game against the Kitchener Rangers. I, I was curious about that. But the only reason I knew that Ryan McGuire had been suspended was because he wasn't in the lineup for the storm that night. Then you, oh, you go to the website, you see in the media notes section, suspension, three games, eligible to return. And then you start asking the questions. And that's when all of this began to come together for me. And I had more questions. And I just, I think if the league communicates better uh, across the board, then we know that. And there are fewer questions. And, and and Josh Sweetland has one less email to answer from a schmuck like me in Kitchener. So this this ties into the next conversation about slew foots. And we've seen them come back you know it's interesting we haven't seen mouth guard violations come back but a number of slew foots in the past week dylan robinson with the uh, sudbury wolves and reed Vallad with the kitchener rangers both assessed slew footing suspensions this past week shout out johnny 807 in his email to ohl podcast at rogers.com he says what he saw in reed Vallad's suspension versus the windsor spitfires should lead the league to revise its definition of a slew foot because what Johnny 807 saw did not look like something that warranted a three game suspension. I will say this at game speed. And I said this on our broadcast didn't look like it. I thought it would be a ticky tacky call for a trip. I did get to watch some slow-mo video later. I understand why the call was made. I even talked to Reed Vallad. He understands why the call was made just because of the way the play transpired. But I wonder, and I know you feel about this, Dan, if Jonathan, who sent the email, isn't onto something here when it comes to taking another look at how we're defining slew footing in the OHL. Yeah, I'm with you, John. And and just for a matter of reference here, I can read the uh, definition of slew foot here from the rule book if I could, Mike. So slew footing occurs when a player uses a leg or a foot to knock, drag, or sweep an opposing player's feet from under them or pushes another player's upper body backward with an arm or elbow and at the same time with a forward motion with their leg knocks, drags, or sweeps the player's feet from under them. So if you caught all that, the the common theme was there still has to be some sort of motion from the lower body legs to take the back of the opponent's legs out from under them. And in my humble opinion, I, I believe that's what has been missing in some of the slew foot calls in the OHL this year, where I understand what you what you said, Mike, in the Reed Vlad case, where he understood it. They were battling for a puck. You'll see it 100 times a game where both players try and leverage their upper bodies a little, gain that advantage. If that's all they go on, it's complete luck of the draw. If the player just happens to fall, well, now it's a slew foot. There was not much action I saw with the legs. And that, to me, has always been what defined a slew foot and what was the dangerous component of a slew foot. Clearly, let's not blame this on the referees. Clearly, the referees have been, they've been told by the league, this is how they want it called. And they're just, they're complying. So this isn't on the officials on ice. This is what they're being told. Because we've seen it throughout the league all year. The, The officials have been consistent. They're calling it when there's some sort of upper body motion, which knocks a player backwards. 
So again, there's two two points I just want to end with. One, if that's the case that the league wants that called that way, then can we clarify this? Can we communicate this? That a slew foot now does not need to involve much action below the waist, uh, which was what fans understood it to be. But to Johnny's point, and I'm in full agreement, I think the league has gone a little bit too far here because when you always err on the side of player safety, fine. So you don't want players falling backwards, hitting their heads, that kind of thing. So you want to get the intent out of there. But when you're not intentionally taking the legs out from under a player as a slew foot was intended to be what you're doing then is you're risking the other end of the spectrum where you're going so far on the outside chance that a player leveraging the upper body might fall might strike himself that you're now taking repeatedly taking good players out of your game off the ice for these games these key games and suspending them for things that were like you said Mike quite ticky tack and not just in the Vlad case I think it's been six or seven times this year where I looked at replays of what they called slew foots and I didn't see much action with the legs that that would warrant a suspension so again I'll come back to that I think there needs to be a minor here or a double minor or something of a lower severity where they could say yeah kind of had that thrusting motion let's penalize him so he stops that instinct to do that maybe but Come on, three-game suspensions for something like that, which was essentially just a puck battle at speed. I'm with John. That's exactly how I would describe it, a puck battle at speed. The result, and and you're talking, you know, this is impact. At this point of the season, and you've got an overage player who's trying to make as much of a splash as he can, finishing out his junior career, no pro deal, no contract, et cetera. There are further reaching impacts of this than just in that game itself. And I'm going to ask the really basic uh, low hanging fruit question here, but I'm thinking about the evolution of the game of hockey and our emphasis on penalizing head checks and checks from behind, which we clearly were seeing more of. It's almost as though the head was becoming a target checking from behind. I mean, there's a reason we've got stop signs on the backs of kids jerseys when they're playing in the minor, minor hockey ranks, but where or where, did the injuries from mouth guard violations and slew foots begin happening with such frequency that we're cracking down like we did this year? I, I haven't seen them. I, I don't know. I, 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 I'd be hard pressed to count two hands worth of slew footing calls that I've seen in the past five years or so in the games that I've covered. I could be wrong, but I, I, I don't know where necessarily this initiative is coming from. Nor do I, Mike. Like, uh, same thing. Is there a problem that we need to address? Sure. Uh, then do it. But I'm not seeing it either. And some of these slew foots we've seen have been almost at a standstill where the player, there was no risk to injury. Um, and if you look at that pure definition of, you know, force to the upper body, pushing a player backwards, well, how many times in a game in a scrum do you see little punches to the head and shots to the head and those kind of things? Theoretically, those are all equally, if not more dangerous. It's force exerted on the up- upper body player encouraging him to fall backwards so we're probably happens a hundred times a night and you might have three or four where the player falls loses the balance hits a rut or something so again are you punishing the intent and the the potential for injury on these things because if so then you've got a whole lot more to clean up ohl or are you just going to be reasonable and say you know these things aren't causing injuries this particular type of play is not a major let's clean that up a little because at the end of the day, we don't want players hurt, but we also don't want players sitting out for ticky-tack stuff like that. All right, one final point on this, and then we'll move along. But this was certainly the 
the meat on the bone of this episode of the OHL podcast. You mentioned Reed Vlad got three games. Dylan Robinson also assessed a uh, slew footing suspension, but just two games. I'll grant you, I, I saw the Vlad replay maybe four times. I saw the Robinson replay twice. The Robinson slew foot looked far more egregious to me. I'm not calling Dylan Robinson a dirty player. It just, that play looked far more egregious, far more dangerous to me. He gets two games. Vlad gets three. To connect back to our earlier conversation around the Ryan McGuire piece, where's the communication? How does one warrant more than the other? We think, we think it's because Reed Vlad is a repeat offender. Just tell us that, Ontario Hockey League. Just make it clear to everybody, please. Is that fair? That is a I'm 100 with you. Just explain it because we're making assumptions. And do you want people making assumptions? Yeah, we know what that does. <laughs> and I am the ass, by the way. Always have been. Always will be. Okay, um, I'm going to do this off the top of my head, but I think I've got it all straight. So Dan Mahar, what do George Diaco, Marco Costantini, Gavin White, Avery Hayes? Ryan Winterton, Ryan Humphrey, and Logan Morrison all have in common. I think I got them all. I just listed seven players for you. What do they all have in common? Don't answer quite yet. We'll give you half a second. We still have to talk about prospects of the week. And we love ourselves some arenas. And there is some arena information still to come on this episode of the OHL podcast. So I've given you your moment, Dan. What do those seven players have in common? They were all members of the championship Hamilton Bulldogs last year who were moved by Hamilton to other teams this year. Did I get them all? I think I got them all right off the top I, of the I dome. I think you did. But I think you did. I have to give you credit because you pointed out uh, another couple on Twitter when I first started talking about this. This is where this particular topic originated. But the bottom line is this. The defending Ontario Hockey League champion, Hamilton Bulldogs, after moving those seven players from their roster, obviously really valuable pieces to the teams that have acquired them, London, Peterborough, uh, the Ottawa 67s. I mean, those are really nice pieces for the teams that are looking to make long runs this year. Hamilton moves all those guys out. And they are currently, as we record this episode, sitting in a position to open the playoffs on home ice as a fourth place team in the East. Come on with your coming on. <laughs> and, and kudos to them. And it's, they're the shining example. There's a few others that 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 we've talked about before that have sold off and have actually improved their winning percentage since selling. And that's got to be bold extremely well for their future um but who cares about their future we're talking this year the hamilton bulldogs might have home ice <laughs> i have it on good authority they refer to that uh gangly bunch over there now that motley crew uh as the misfits and so you got you know sahil panwar's over there he's on his third team now nick lardis look at what he is doing 
Uh, and look, he's been my prospect of the week twice already this season. I think you can see there's a little bit of a bias here, but I've just liked his game and look how his game has blossomed with all of the extra opportunity he's getting, but y- you got to give, and we didn't even mention kind of off the ice and this will be part of our arena conversation in just a bit, but the, the cloud hanging over the team, like they just played their final regular season home game at first Ontario center. Cause the Bulldogs are shipping out to Brantford next year I, for, for this team to be doing what it's doing in fairness, in part, they're probably competing for that fourth spot because the Pete's have been stumbling and bumbling a bit. Hamilton will likely finish fifth, but even to be in this conversation right now is a testament to what's going on over there with that bunch of misfits. Well, yeah, I think you just touched on it, Mike. They have every excuse in the book to mail it in the rest of this year, take an early holiday, and and they've done the exact opposite. I mean, look how much off-ice turmoil there's been, a lot of your friends being traded, new faces in the room. I can't say enough about Sahil Panwar and what he's done since coming over. He'd gone from being traded in probably his final year in league to being a dominant player. So a huge leadership boost there in that dressing room, but really have to give your credit to Jay McKee and his staff too, for keeping that train on track and, and doing some special things, despite every excuse not to. I think Panwar, is it his fourth team now? London, Flint, Peterborough, Hamilton. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's it, Hamilton's a, a really cool story right now. And I shouldn't have overlooked the Kitchener Rangers when I talked about the teams that were loading up with former OHL champions to make runs. It just goes to show you, I try, honestly, I do, to keep my bias out of this, right? Anyway, Costantini, of course, with the Rangers, Logan Morrison with uh, Ottawa, Hayes and White with Peterborough, Diaco, Winterton, Humphrey with London. I think I got them all now. Okay, uh, let's touch on, because I mentioned the arena conversation was coming up and where the Hamilton Bulldogs are going next season. We talked about this a way back, Dan, when the conversation first began about getting the Bulldogs who will be called the Brantford Bulldogs next season. They held an open practice there. Fans loved it. They've sold almost 2000 seats already. And we kind of hinted around the idea of a, they may never go back to Hamilton and B I had the opportunity to speak with the mayor of Brantford. And he said, he made it very clear. I'm paraphrasing, but pretty close to the direct quote. He made it very clear that if it's not the Bulldogs, he wants an Ontario Hockey League team back in the city of Brantford. Well, it sounds like the Civic Center, which is going to get a little bit of a makeover, but no more seats. So about 3,000, which will be the smallest venue in the OHL when it opens for business next year. But that might not be, in fact, it won't be the long-term arena for the city of Brantford. No, and we hear when Brantford City Council is talking about we want an OHL team one way or the other. We need a new arena. And there seems to be a lot of consensus around that council table, as well as the community itself, that we want this back. So if you look at a, a community that was asked to put its best foot forward and prove that you deserve a team, while Brantford is doing everything they can. And I, I think at last count, if I'm not mistaken, it was over 2,400 seats they've sold for for next year. And what what a statement to the league and and to investors to say, yeah, this is viable in this market. And if you're city council and you're trying to make that decision, you look at that in just a matter of weeks. Yeah, we've got almost a full arena in the Civic Center next year to to support this this nomad team here. So what what happens if we get our own team with our own identity, our own uh, branding moving forward at a nice spanking new arena? So I think all signs are are pointing positively for the Brantford community. I will point out, I don't mean to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. 
when Brampton finally gave up in Brampton and Scott Abbott, the owner, took him home to for him to North Bay and made them the North Bay Battalion again. Still wish they brought back the Centennial's name. But anyway, uh, there was great excitement and fanfare and lots of bums in seats. I think they were like 3,500 season ticket subscribers, but there were three-year packages sold with the anticipation of the team coming back. That has dropped off rather dramatically since that initial burst. So look, I don't want to whiz on Brantford's parade. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just, I think this is a fair compare uh, comparable here. That doesn't mean it can't be sustained longer in Brantford. I think it's just a reminder that, listen, it's not like you just plop in a franchise and say, oh, okay, everybody's going to be excited about it and stay excited about it forever. You got to keep that fan base engaged. You got to keep that fan base happy. And of course we know that winning helps in that regard an awful lot. And heck, Hamilton slash soon to be Brantford has a pretty good track record of doing that 2018 and then 2022 as uh, OHL champions is not a bad thing at all. No. And there's all kinds of factors you're going to have to take into account when you factor bringing a team to a community. But one thing I will point out, and this isn't a knock on, on North Bay by any stretch, but the economy and population in Brantford has escalated quite a bit more rapidly than than up north so you take into account those factors too the whole new population base in Brantford uh, and some of the economic development that's gone on there and it starts to look a lot more viable longer term again I, you you make a really valid point about the the petering off effect over time but part of that will be on the uh, hockey ops on ice people what what kind of product can they put on the ice so there there's also some magical casino money in Brantford that was not there when the Alexanders were there four decades ago and uh yeah there's a lot to like about the market right now we'll see what happens I I have my doubts sincerely I'm sorry Hamilton but I have my doubts that the Bulldogs or the OHL for that matter will ever be back in the Steel City but We'll see where it goes from there. One more note on the arena situation. And we have Don to thank for this one. I think Johnny 807 is getting, like, he's like a, a third host on this podcast this week. But Don also sent an email to ohlpodcast at rogers.com because we had the conversation last week about the Sudbury arena situation. And thanks to Don, uh, we learned that Dario Zulich, the owner of the Sudbury Wolves, who always wanted that project out on the Kingsway, that's where he wanted the arena to go. Well, not only is he now in favor of a downtown arena, but he's sitting on the downtown advisor, or the Business Improvement Association advisory board, which only bodes well for something I think pretty special in Sudbury. I love the idea of downtown arenas. Why shouldn't Sudbury have one too? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thanks, Don, for that. And yeah, if John's now a third host on this program, that means uh, I'm now the third best host here. So if Don gets too much information here, I'll get knocked off the podium. So so simmer down up there, Don. But no, we, we appreciate the information. And, and I think that's a great sign. Like you said, we felt pretty strongly, Mike, that there's property downtown Sudbury. There's a great uh, potential there and just get it done. So that Again, you talk about positive signs in Brantford, it's positive signs up north if he's now sitting on the BIA in downtown BIA. It looks like things are moving. The Old Rock Coffee Shop is also in downtown Sudbury. They've had enough plugs right now. I should either get my next coffee free or they should sign on as a sponsor. I don't know. Keep those emails coming, please. OHLpodcast at rogers.com. Tweet Dan at Dan Mahar or me at Farwell underscore OHL. We love to interact with you because we are fans of this league just like you are, and that's what this is all about. Before we go, we always like to wrap up with our prospects of the week. Dansky, who do you have your eyes on? 
All right, going a little bit under the radar again, Mike, because I, I like to acknowledge guys that look to me like ready to pounce next year, jump out of the gates. We talked about Nick Lardis getting a, an increased role in what he's done. So I had to give a little love. I felt like I've been shortchanging those North Bay Battalion and how good they have been on another six-game heater. 89 points, just phenomenal team up there. Uh, Going to be a beast in the playoffs. My prospect of the week is Anthony Romani, who... Coming out of the Toronto Junior Canadians program, you know, put up eight goals in his rookie season. Looked like some promise. He's already hit the 20 mark. Just did it this weekend. First start of the game. Uh, playing behind some good veteran talent there. I'm looking for him to take a massive leap forward uh, next year with the battalion. So Anthony Romani's mine. Mike, who you got? I love that you just mentioned North Bay. First of all, let's uh, give another shout out to Anthony Romani as the teammate of Dallin Wakeley, along with Dom uh, DiVincentis, who participated in that Indigenous hockey experience up in North Bay. So that's worth shouting out again. Just as you started, I took a little glance down at my paper, Dan, because I like to make notes to make sure I don't, you know, keep us on track here and not miss anything that we have agreed we want to talk about. And I had forgotten one little note about the North Bay Battalion I, when I glanced down. So I'll get to that in a second. But great prospect of the week from you, as usual. I am not going anywhere near uh, below the surface. I'm staying right up here on top because uh, those sneaky Sudbury Wolves, you know, probably two weeks ago, we would have been talking about the Sudbury Wolves and battling with the Oshawa Generals for the eighth and final playoff spot in the Eastern Conference. Well, now Oshawa and Kingston can battle that out because the Sudbury Wolves are in conversation for sixth place right behind the Mississauga Steelheads. And that's thanks to having won six of seven. They've dropped back-to-back games now, some tough teams in there. But uh, they went on a little bit of a heater, the uh, Sudbury Wolves did. And uh, a key part of that heater is none other than Quentin Musty. Seven goals, five assists in seven games. I know, I'm not I'm not breaking anybody's... Uh, Scouting list here. I'm not going much below the surface. I just think big players show up in big moments, and Quentin Musty, as we know, is going to make an NHL team pretty happy this fall, this summer. Yeah, starting to hear some whispers. He might be climbing higher in that first round of the NHL draft than originally thought, too. And we've had a few prospects of the week come out of Sudbury this year, including mine from last week with Nate Krawchuk. And they're doing some special things to their post deadline. They've kind of separated themselves from those seventh and eighth spots and, and are flirting with that mid pack now. So good things happening in Sudbury. The point on North Bay that I wanted to make, it's just, you know, we talked about Hamilton and, and the great story that's going on there. We know North Bay is a powerhouse in the East, but let's just pause for a moment to pay homage to how much of a powerhouse they've been of late. You talk about their six game heater in the past five games, Dan, in the past five games at the point of this recording, North Bay has allowed one, one goal. Four of their past five victories have been by shutout. I don't care what league you're playing in. That is noteworthy. So consider the note just made. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was going to say when, when Dom DiVincentis is not, inspiring indigenous communities he's he's deflating opposing shooters so what a year he's having okay i'm looking at my sheet again my notes here again because i have to make sure yes i like to finish this episode of the ohl podcast by teeing up our guest in the feature interview uh for friday's podcast so because you get these twice a week right uh let me see what i can say about this he was there 
when the Owen Sound Platers became the Owen Sound Attack. That was my reason for reaching out. I thought, let's get an original member of the Owen Sound Attack. So what was that whole situation like? He also just so happened to coach Owen Power when he was coming up through minor hockey. He's still coaching. I think he's a he's a name that you might hear more of in coaching in the years to come. But he is our guest, having played for the likes of Dave Cameron, Burt Templeton, and Danny Flynn along the way. Uh, that will be an original member of the Owen Sound Attack will be our guest on the Friday episode. So you're going to have to dig deep to figure this one out, but I think you'll enjoy the conversation. I can't wait, Mike. And 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 sorry, if I could go off script for just a second when you mentioned the Owen, Town, Owen Sound Attack and just mention a word this week that former winningest coach in, in their history, Mike Stuthers, is battling cancer. So all the best to Mr. Stuthers. Class act, great guy. Wish you all the best. Yeah, you know what? That's a really good point. I will echo that. Not more, not much more I can add to it. And when you point out he's the winningest, uh, Greg Walters just moved into seventh place all time as uh, an attack head coach. He's got a ways to go. He's got like 100 wins to go to catch up to Stuthers. But best to Mike and the Stuthers family. Okay, we got to go. Uh, we'll be back again next Tuesday with an episode just like this. That previous member of the Owen Sound Attack, our feature guest on Friday. He is Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell. Thanks for listening to the OHL Podcast. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.